book of the Bible. But it's a short one. It is the book, the letter of Philemon, sometimes pronounced Philemon. And one of the things I hope that we've been doing as we've gone through the Bible is learn to listen to God's word. We can read it. That's what I most often do. We see it with our eyes. Sometimes we read it silently. But learn to listen as it is read out loud. And so this morning's a great exercise in that as we listen to this letter from Paul to Philemon. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker, to Aphia, our sister, to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers because I hear about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints. I pray that you may be active in sharing your faith so that you will have a full understanding of every good thing we have in Christ. Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the saints. Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I appeal to you on the basis of love. I, then, as Paul, an old man and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he has become useful both to you and to me. I'm sending him, who is my very heart, back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I am in chains for the gospel. But I did not want to do anything without your consent, so that any favor you do will be spontaneous and not forced. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back for good, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a man and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has done any wrong to you or owes you anything, Charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back, not to mention that you owe me your very self. I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I ask. And one more thing. Prepare a guest room for me, because I hope to be restored to you in answer to your prayers. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you greetings. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. May God bless to our understanding the reading of this, his holy word. Amen. You notice how short the books are getting now? And uh, how few pages remain as we read through the whole Bible. Hmm. Keep reading. Keep focused on God. 
We've been at this since January. Wow. And let's, uh, let's just briefly remind ourselves where we are in God's big story. And the Bible, you know, is the story of God setting this world right. And we might think of the Bible as a drama that falls into six major acts. Act one is God's intention. God created a world. He created us in his image. And God's intention was for men and women to care for his good and wonderful world with wisdom and to do it in relationship to him and with him. Acts 2 tells, though, of how humans and the entire creation are sent into a kind of exile because of Adam and Eve deciding to go their own way. And humans are driven from God's presence. And ever since then, there has been a conflict between us and God. And we have been trying to find our way back to the source of life. But God sets in motion a plan of redemption. And he begins with a man named Abraham. And in Act 3, God promises to make a great nation from him and bring blessing to all peoples of the world through Abraham and his line. And when Abraham's descendants are enslaved in Egypt, God hears their cry. He rescues them and he brings forth the nation of Israel. And this people, are they're, they're called by God to be a light to all the nations. And he tells them that they need to obey him. They need to live in covenant with him. If they don't, he will be forced to send them away. But Israel defaults on their mission. And God sends Israel away from their homeland into deeper exile. In Acts 4, Act 4, Jesus comes. And he claims to be the king of Israel. And he claims to have a coming kingdom. It's not a kingdom of this world. And he is killed giving up his life for the nation, giving up his life for the world. But his death becomes victory when God reverses his death and resurrection. And it is a new beginning as reconciliation with God and the end of the exile becomes possible for all who have faith in Jesus as God's Messiah. And the failure of not being able to keep that first covenant, the old covenant, is forgiven as a new covenant is established where we can have forgiveness of sins and be reconciled with God. Act 5 is about God's mission of proclaiming the message of God's victory in Christ. And God does that through a renewed people who live by faith and love in Christ. And this is the act we're living in right now. This is the part of the drama where we are. And our understanding of how to be the renewed people of God comes from the writings of the New Testament. And the letters of Paul are just key and crucial in understanding that. Now, Act 6 is still to come. We're waiting for when Christ returns to complete what he began in resurrection, ending all evil in violence and violence in this world and establishing a new heaven and a new earth. And this morning, the big story, all the events of Israel, of Christ, the coming and the victory of Christ, and the mighty proclaiming and the missionary spread of the gospel, they all kind of give way to a small, simple, intimate letter from one really to another. The letter of Paul to Philemon is just from one heart to another heart. 
There was no large events. There are no theological doctrines that come from this. There are no instructions for church order in this letter. But the earliest Christians included this letter in our scriptures and what it means to be the renewed people of God. Philemon is Paul's plea for the release of a slave named Onesimus. And Paul writes that Onesimus be spared punishment, that he be treated with mercy, that he be welcomed into the church family. And really the letter is not only uh, to Philemon, but it's also to a woman named Aphia. We read about her, a man named Archippus, and an entire church that meets in Philemon's home. We get insight into the first century church and Christianity here. They met in people's homes. Philemon is the owner of a slave named Onesimus, which means Philemon was probably wealthy. He was probably influential. He was probably powerful. Slavery is mentioned often in the New Testament. Uh, Often slaves are told to be submissive to their masters and to do so as an example in Christ. Some background on slavery in the first century. Some studies estimate that there were as many as 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire in the first century. The entire economy was based on slavery. Now, of course, for our nation, slavery is the darkest spot in our history. Slavery in the Bible is somewhat different from what we think of as slavery through our Western experience and what we did to African-American people here. It was still a very severe system. It could be dehumanizing, but it was different. There were different levels of slavery in the Roman Empire. Some slaves were domestic servants uh, doing all the menial and hard labor in a house or in a palace. They were often treated poorly, or they could be. Some slaves were manual laborers. They would work on the infrastructure. They built towns. They built cities. Uh, They worked on farms. Some slaves were actually doctors. Lawyers, teachers, tutors and guardians charged with educating children in a wealthy household, they were often slaves, they were educated, uh, they lived very decent lives, but they were owned by others. There were evidence, there was evidence of brutality to slaves, but there was also evidence that slaves could be deeply cherished parts of families and quite high-ranking in their own right. In Luke chapter 7, we read a story of a Roman soldier coming to Jesus on behalf of his slave who is near death. And the Roman soldier comes because he loves his slave. He doesn't see his slave's life as worthless at all. Slavery was a fact of Mediterranean life. And for one human being to own another human being is degrading. Now for our minds, shaped by 21st century Western democratic thinking, In reality, we can't imagine why slavery could exist like this. I mean, why didn't Paul ever call for the revolt of the slaves and say, "Let's, let's take this ship and change it? Why doesn't Jesus ever take on slavery? Slavery is never really challenged in Christianity. And it wasn't challenged or questioned because the Roman Empire was a system where it could not be questioned or challenged. There was no we the people happening in the first century of Rome. If you challenged your status as a slave, 
Consider yourself dead most of the time. There was no due process. There were no hearings. There was no democracy. There was no free speech. Even if you were a valued slave, even if you were seen as a respectable part of the larger society, you'd probably be killed if you questioned your slavery in any way. Furthermore, Christians were powerless, insignificant as a group in the Roman Empire. Their religion was against the law. They were viewed with suspicion. For them to do almost anything was a huge risk. We might be bothered why Paul tells slaves to be submissive to their masters again and again in his letters, but what part of what Paul is trying to do is tell them how to survive in an unwanted system. There was no real alternative to a society that wasn't mostly slaves at that time. As I said, the economy was basically based on slavery. Employment was by ownership, not private contract. Not all slavery was a dead-end life. Hundreds of thousands of slaves were freed out of, again, millions and millions. And there were many opportunities for slaves. And there's evidence of some changes that were beginning to take place in the first century and even some legal rights being given to slaves. We read some ca- of some cases where slaves were bought and given their freedom or where they earned their own freedom um, and actually became wealthy owners themselves. There's a little remark Paul makes in 1 Corinthians, I think it is, where he gives a hint where he says to slaves, you know, if you can in any way get your freedom, take it. But the chances of that were really small. Slavery was the reality of the day. Part of the significance of the letter to Philemon is that it shows how Christianity in a quiet and somewhat subversive way had an effect on slavery. The fact that Paul even addresses slaves in his letters says something about how they were seen in early Christianity. Slaves were seen as people with lives that mattered. They had souls. They were not just property. They were not just to be ignored. But they were people who were redeemed and loved by the Lord of the universe. Onesimus is a slave who belongs to Philemon. Onesimus has left. He's probably escaped from Philemon. He has violated his status as a slave. And Onesimus somehow gets connected with Paul and becomes useful to Paul. Now, in fact, Paul does a little wordplay on Onesimus' name in the letter. And Onesimus literally means useful. Paul saying, he has become useful to me. In an even deeper sign of his relationship with Onesimus, Paul calls him my very heart. Paul knows as a leader and authority in the church, for some reason, he has, uh, he has leverage over Philemon. And he could order Philemon if he wanted to, saying, I'm keeping Onesimus. But Paul decides to appeal to Philemon on the basis of love. He wants Philemon's consent. He doesn't want any response on Philemon's part to be forced. Paul points out, he's an old man now, he's in chains. He he kind of paints a pitiable picture of himself, and and maybe he wants Philemon to kind of feel sorry for him. Maybe Paul's trying to play all his cards on the table. But whatever, here is a lesson in communication between people in the body of Christ when an issue needs to be worked out. We don't do power plays. And we don't manipulate. 
We deal with one another in love, seeking and believing the best in one another. You know, Paul's language in this letter is just so gentle. We sp- and we speak to one another in good faith and in the spirit of Christ. Paul would love to keep Onesimus, but he's sending him back to his rightful owner, Philemon, knowing what could happen. But he appeals to Philemon to do three things. He says, Philemon, number one, see Onesimus as a brother in the Lord. Number two, welcome him as you would welcome me, Paul himself. And third, he says, if Onesimus has done any wrong to you, you charge it to me. Take it out on me. Three things. That Paul requests. And by doing this, Paul says to Philemon that Philemon will refresh my heart in Christ. You will refresh my heart in Christ if you do this. Wow. The letter of Philemon is one heart to another heart in love, affirmation, and good faith. But why is this letter in our scriptures? Because slaves were also brothers and sisters in Christ. Because slaves and owners were part of the same church. And in the church, there are no barriers of status. A slave might be worshiping right alongside his or her owner. And in the first century Roman Empire, that was radical. It just didn't happen anywhere else. Let's go back to some of the things that Paul writes in his other letters about how relationships are transformed because of Christ and how people are seen in the renewed people of God. In 1 Corinthians, Paul writes, For we were all baptized into one spirit, into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free. We were all given the one spirit to drink. In Galatians, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. Male nor female, for we are all one in Christ Jesus. Colossians, here, meaning the church, he says the community of faith. There's no Greek, there's no Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. But Christ is all and is in all. The oneness that came about in Christ is so important to Paul that he writes about it several times. William Barclay explains it like this. What Christianity did was to introduce a new relationship between people in which all external differences were abolished. It was as a slave that Onesimus ran away. It was as a slave that he was coming back. But now he was not only a slave, he was a beloved brother in the Lord. When a relationship like that enters into life, social grades and castes cease to matter. The very names, master and slave, become irrelevant. If the master treats the slave as Christ would have treated him, and if the slave serves the master as he would serve Christ, then it does not matter if you call one master and the other slave. Their relationship does not depend on any human classification, for they are both in Christ. Christians in the first century knew the limits of trying to attack slavery. What the faith of Jesus Christ did was to allow people to relate to one another in a way where one's status in society did not matter anymore. 
Slaves and free were sharing in community with one another. They were praying together. They were singing and worshiping together. They were in the same homes and church together. They were eating at the same table in fellowship. They were sharing in the Lord's Supper together. And they treated one another with dignity and respect and love. And I think one of the reasons that the letter to Philemon was included in the scriptures was because Christians wanted to know how to work out this new reality. Walls were coming down. Labels were no longer relevant. Christ was all and he was in all. And they were asking, how do we do this together now? Because we've never seen anything like this. Philemon, you know, in some ways, the issue is not so much Onesimus' status as it is Philemon's heart. The issue is Philemon's freedom maybe more than Onesimus' freedom. Can Philemon be merciful? Or will he be vindictive? But can he even see a slave as a brother in Christ? Will Philemon be free? Philemon's a letter about mercy. Another reason this letter might have been so important to early Christians is to explain the person and the story of Onesimus. Because you see, about 50 years later, In Christian writing, there was a Christian leader named Ignatius, and he is arrested, and he's awaiting execution. And as he's in prison, he writes letters to various Christian communities to encourage them. And one of the churches he writes to is the church in Ephesus. We know a lot about them. The New Testament talks a lot about the church of the Ephesians in Ephesus. It's a prominent Christian community. And one of the things we read in Ignatius' letter to the Ephesian church are deep words of affirmation about their bishop whose name is Onesimus. And Ignatius describes Onesimus as someone whose love is beyond words. Ignatius writes, blessed is he who should let you have a bishop like him. Ignatius even makes the same play of words that Paul did in his letter on the name Onesimus, saying that he's useful. Oh, he's useful. Had this runaway slave become the bishop of the church of Ephesus? We can't say for sure. And some scholars doubt it. Some think it's a different Onesimus, but I'm not so sure. We don't know how it all turned out. Did Philemon welcome Onesimus back with no punishment? As a brother in Christ, in the Lord, and give him freedom because of the gospel? Did he allow him to remain with Paul and become useful to Paul? Did Onesimus keep a copy of that letter and pass it around to other churches to be read as a testimony of the mercy of Christ in his life and how a slave can become free and become a leader and a bishop in the church. In some ways, the letter to Philemon, I think, is like reading the book of Ruth in the Old Testament. You know, in the midst of world-shaking events and everything just seems to stop and, 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 and a single seemingly insignificant ordinary life comes into the focus and through that life, unlikely as it is, God does something big. Through Ruth, a Canaanite who the Israelites were all supposed to kill, God brings about King David through her life, through the romance that she has with Boaz. 
through Onesimus, a rebellious slave, God provides a leader of his people. Both are stories of everyday people and relationships and love. We don't think we're anything significant, but who knows how God is using our story and how he will use it in his big story that he's writing and playing out. You know, it may be only one page in our Bibles, but Philemon is somewhat revolutionary in that it shows the changes in social relationships because of the gospel. And we are thankful that we no longer have slaves and owners in this country. Yes, there is a sex slave industry that is sad and dirty and an exception to that, but I'm speaking of what's above ground and what's legal in our society. And because we are in Christ, we see people differently. Labels dissolve in Christ. In Christ, who is our ultimate allegiance. Our ultimate allegiance, there's no longer liberal and conservative, or Republican or Democrat, or rich or poor. In Christ, there's no longer longtime veteran Christian and rookie baby newcomer Christian. In Christ, there's no longer old and young. Educated. Oh, you're uneducated. There's not pacifist and military. There is not socioeconomic barriers. There's not well-connected and the outsider. There is not refugee and citizen. Yeah, we know who each other are, who each other is. Yes, we have identities in our society, but in the body of Christ, those identities submit to our main identity, which is people of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the most important thing about you and the most important thing about me and the most important thing about anyone is that, who we are in Christ. The person sitting next to you, the person sitting behind you, the person sitting in front of you is a brother or sister in Christ. And as we treat one another that way, May all of our hearts be refreshed. Let's pray. Father, teach us to appeal to one another with mercy, believing the best. And teach us to treat one another according to our identity in Christ and not as the world. And thank you for this small, short, but so important letter. Amen. Will you stand with us?